It's been interesting over the last couple of weeks as I've been listening to the Lord and trying to understand what he would have me say uh, as I share with you what's going on in my life and in the word. And uh, It's been a, a kind of an agonizing experience for me personally because the Lord keeps pointing out stuff I need to change. I'm like, oh gosh, Lord, just leave me alone and let this be about other people. It's much easier that way. No, he, he wouldn't do that. But it's, it's been good stuff that the Lord has been showing me. And it's, we're, we're continuing the journey in Luke chapter 1. And if you'll turn there with me. Last week we, we talked a bit about Zechariah's blessing. He spoke a blessing over his newborn son, John. And that blessing read like this. You will become a prophet of the Most High. And he spoke this foundation of a word of blessing into his life that provided a foundation for his life. A foundation that became what John built his story on. The story of John the Baptist is quite incredible. How he impacted Israel and the things that he did and the things that he preached and spoke into people's lives. And he found a story, John did, of how he fit into God's story. And that came out, it was birthed out of this blessing that, that his father spoke over him. Today we, again, live in a society that doesn't understand the father's blessing. We are a father, fatherless generation. It has been spoken over us. We are a society that doesn't understand what it means to receive a father's blessing because most fathers have been so consumed about their blessings and their need for blessing, they don't understand how to speak into their children and blessing into their children this is not just a new pattern it's something that's kind of gradually been woven into our society but if you are going you and i are going to be the people of god that we need to be we need to understand what it means to be blessed we need to understand what it means for us to receive a blessing not just from a man or a woman but from god because that's what's going to shape our life and that's what's going to shape our stories I want to understand John's story, and in order to understand John's story, we have to go back before the blessing and see what uh, Zechariah spoke in the, whole, in the beginning of this song. And if we start in verse 68, we can see a little bit of the background of the blessing that, that he spoke into his, his son's life. It says there, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. If you read and carefully these words, you'll notice that Zechariah is using terms like Israel, people of God, us, our Father. It's talking about a corporate people. He never uses terms like I, me, or mine. It's about us. And if you and I are going to understand and receive our blessing, we have to understand how God blesses his people. 
If I'm going to receive my blessing and an understanding and a knowledge of the who I am in who I am, I have to understand and see myself in the midst of a corporate body that God has put me. And when I do that, who I am becomes clear. Who I am becomes manifest. So to begin to practice this and to begin to understand this a little bit, I want to ask you to do something with me. I want you to put down your Bibles and stand up. And I want you to stretch across the aisles all across the room and, and grab someone's hand on each side. And we're going to pray together because we are a body of Christ and we're going to... It's not just me up here praying. I want you to pray with me and pray into the things that the Lord has laid on my heart to pray for this morning. And we're going to pray that this body will manifest the kingdom of God here on earth in what we're talking about. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak into our lives. From the youngest person here to the oldest person here, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you're saying and, and redeem us and save us as you come into the midst of us. Thank you for your presence, which is already here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here in our midst. And Lord, I pray for this church that we would become the people of God that radically manifests your kingdom in this world. I pray for the children's ministry that is meeting right now, that you would speak through the teachers and the, and the workers there, and that you would uh, just, your Holy Spirit would anoint them to speak powerfully into their lives and to love on those kids. I pray for the uh, junior high service that's going on right now, and I pray that the middle schoolers would just, they would be overwhelmed by your presence as they worship together. And the leaders, I pray for them as they, as, as they, they minister there. I pray for people in this room who are leaders, who, who sacrifice for this church, and who have given their lives in various ways, from the ushers and greeters to to sound people, to cameramen and, uh, and women, I pray that you would just bless them this morning. I pray that you'd bless the worship team as they've sacrificed and restore their energy today. Lord, I thank you for other leaders that are just work behind the scenes, and I, I pray that you'd bless them. I pray for our executive team who's, who's traveling this weekend, and I pray your protection and your sovereign hand upon them. I pray that you would speak to them as they are seeking your face as, as, they, as they are out of town and bring them back to us safely. God, I, I thank you for this place and how you are manifesting your spirit and your kingdom here in the midst of us. And we give you glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. The question of who I am is a question that we often ask. We sit before the mirror and we look and say, who is this person? Sometimes we like what we see, sometimes we don't like what we see. Many people don't like what they see more than they like what they see. But it comes out, we often answer that question of who I am by looking at me. Or at least I tr have tried to answer that question from the sense of analyzing myself. We, reviewed, we, we talked a little bit about this last week, and we talked about the fenced-in self. And it's as if I'm standing before you with four fences around me. I'm standing in a box, if you will. And I try to analyze myself to find out who I am. Look within myself to define myself. And last week we said we couldn't do that. We're not going to find ourselves by looking at ourselves because the more we look at ourselves, the less we understand ourselves. Does that make sense? We have to look at something different. We have to look outside of ourselves to discover who I am. So to do that, we talked about last week how we have to understand and participate in our Old Testament heritage. We have to participate in the, the actions of God throughout history. We can't just look at now in the immediate because the fenced-in self says, 
All that matters is today. All that matters is what's going on right now. Yesterday doesn't matter. We're a people that doesn't have a history. I, went, I visited Russia uh, a few years ago, and, and our, the lady who was taking us around Moscow was just going into all the history. I mean, you're talking about 1,200 years of history. You know, I remember sitting in American history class and people were complaining, why do we have to learn history? What, of what practical use is it? And let me say, if you don't understand the history of God and how he has worked in this world, you're not going to understand yourself. Because you need to understand how God's actions act and how he is for you, for you to understand how you fit in this. So we have to tear down this wall and look back and say, what has God done in my life? And not, not just in my life, but in the, the life of his people. In addition, we have to tear down this other wall, which is looking toward our future and having a hope. And we have to look forward into what God is going to do in our lives. Because who you are today is not who you're going to be tomorrow. The depression you may have today is not going to be around forever. I'm here to speak hope into your life because you don't have to live with the things that are in your life. Because God, the God who has saved people in the past and acted on the, our behalf in the past is going to act on your behalf tomorrow. And it's as if you're rowing a boat. If you ever rowed a boat, gotten on a lake, there are a lot of lakes around here. Wow. If you only knew, because you guys live here. I'm just, I'm just new here now, so everywhere I turn is a new lake. But if you're rowing a boat on one of these lakes, you're looking back, but you're going this direction. The way to understand what God is doing in your life is to look and see what he has done and trust him for your future and your hope. So we've torn down this wall of our, our fenced-in self, and we've torn down this wall of our fenced-in self, and we have two more to go. Not only is the fenced-in self characterized by the, the immediate focus of today, it's characterized by an individualistic focus. To find who I am in the fenced-in self, I can only, only analyze myself. And I have to wrestle with who I am in the midst of that, and it's a, a never-ending process because we can never find out what that means. So to, to tear down these walls, I want to ask you a question. Let me ask you this. What kind of story will you write? What kind of story will you write? Two years ago, about two years ago, my sister called me in tears saying that uh, our uncle, our uncle Wimpy, yes, that's his name, uh, had died. He was one of our favorites. He was the kind of person that you love to be around. He took us to an amusement park as a Sunday school class one time, and we stayed until the gates closed. And five minutes before the gates closed, he was leading us on the ride of the Conquistador. It was this big ship that went back and forth, back and forth. And five minutes before the gates closed, we'd ride it, and then he would lead the pack and run about 50 yards, because they wouldn't let us just stay on it, even though there was no line. We had to run and get back in line for the next ride. And here's this man who's 50, 55 years old leading us, and we're like 12. And, you know, and he's just loving this, eating it up. And, he, cause he, when, and when he passed away, the night before the funeral, we had the viewing, and um, there were over 1,000 people who showed up for the viewing. 
Now, Wimpy, you might think, was a young man, because that is often characteristic of someone who's young, who has a lot of friends who are his age, but he wasn't young. He was in his 70s. And you might think, well, that many people showing up who cared about him that much, you might think, well, he was a speaker or a writer or somebody who had some notoriety in the community. No. Never preached, never did anything to get any recognition, never held an office. But Wimpy wrote a life that was worth reading. Wimpy wrote a life that other people liked to read. Now, was he perfect? No, he was stubborn. Oh, was he stubborn. But he was there for people. He served people. He loved people. His last job was that of a bus driver. And kids would show up in tears saying, is Wimpy going to be back tomorrow? You know, and here's this 72-year-old man driving a bus, loving on children. Before that, he, was a construction, he had a, owned a construction company. Before that, he was a farmer. Before that, he drove a bread truck. A little scary, because I remember them saying when he got glasses for the first time, he goes, oh, you can actually read the words on billboards. I'm like, you drive a bread truck. How in the world did this happen? But I mean, here was this man who impacted people's lives, and it made me ask the question, what kind of story am I writing? Because people are reading my story as they meet me. And I would suggest to you today that most people in America write this story. Now, you are probably exempt from this, because here things are different. But most people in, the, in America are writing the story of the individual. There are three characteristics to this story I'd like to point out. The first characteristic of this story is that of the making of the better you. In other words, the plot line of this story is how can I be better? How can I become better? How can I become a better person? and do more, and get more, and all those questions. I went to the bookstore this week, went to the self-help section, pulled out three books, and these are they. First, one was titled, You, the Owner's Manual. <laughs> How you can be happy and healthy. All about you talking to you in your fenced-in self because your happiness is all about how you feel. That's what the book assumed. The second one I pulled off was uh, uh, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. So, in other words, if you read this book, you too can be brilliant and you too will have people reading your journals 500 years from now. Okay, maybe. The third one... Uh, was, had a boring title, so I went online and found another one with a little bit more exciting title, but it, it's called How to Raise Your Self-Esteem. And it, all the instructions in this book were about how you can raise your self-esteem by, again, focusing on yourself to make yourself feel better about yourself. Now, uh, let me just kind of give you a little caveat here. I'm, I'm not saying these books are worthless. I, I've, I gleaned them and found some interesting insights in them, but they all assumed that the center of the universe is the reader of that book. Because the writer is assuming 
that he or she is the center of the universe, and if he or she feels good about his or herself, then you can too. The story of the better individual is about the making of a better you, and you might think, well, that's what the secular world tells you. You We don't have to worry about that in the church, and I'm like, well, it's kind of creeped into the church a little bit. A few years ago, I uh, heard this song, and I was troubled by it. And I didn't understand why I was troubled by this song, but uh, now I think I get, have a little bit of a handle on it. It's a Christian, contemporary Christian song, and if you like it, and I'm gonna, I don't mean to offend you, uh, I just don't like the song. I'll use it as an example. It talked about, and said, it had a line in it, I want to be a man that you can write about. And it referenced people in the history of the church and how we studied their history of 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, or even 2,000 years ago. And they're saying, I want to be a man that you can write about in the future. And I I was thinking, wow, there's something wrong with that. Because I'm not sure the Apostle Paul was going around saying, I want to be a man that people 2,000 years can read about. They were just worried about following God in the now, doing what God had called them to do today, being obedient in the moment of what God's doing and being a part of this bigger history. Not a, the, the history of God is about God, not men. And if I'm worried about if people are going to read about me 200 years from now, it's about me. Let me illustrate it another way. I went to this retreat a few years ago, and um, it was a Christian retreat. And the first question around this retreat was, um, why did you come to this retreat? And I said, my, and my answer, I said, well, I want to grow. And the guy turned back to me and said, how selfish. And I thought, wait a second, that's a Christian answer. Because I want to be the best Christian I can be. And he's saying, no, that answer is, reveals that all you're concerned about is you. And how people perceive you and how God perceives you. There's a much bigger thing going on than you. And I'm like, I don't like you. (laughs) I wanted to get up and hit the man. I was bigger than he was. I probably would have won. But, you know, there were other people in the room that would have restrained me. And, oh, well, I had to get over the story of the making of the better you. The second thing that is a characteristic of the story of the individual is the problem of the unobserved self. If I am living in this four-walled universe, I find myself only interacting with me and choosing to interact with other people when I want to, but by no means do I want them to give me any feedback. Because... I have to get things right within me first. Then you can give me feedback just as long as it's positive. You know, last week I kind of had an image, as we talked about the fenced-in self, of a a chain-link fence, something you could see through. And as I've wrestled with this, it's more like a rock fence, one of those old rock fences that you see in movies where it's, it's... those rock fences don't move they stay there for years and hundreds of years and we built up these fences around us that are that are stable and the only way somebody can see into our universe is if they are bold enough or audacious enough or even rude enough to look over then we look up and say get down 
I did not ask you to give me impact, input. I don't want your input. I don't want your feedback. I am who I am. Who cares if I smell? Don't tell me. You know, I'm so thankful for my wife because she made me a much better dresser because she gave me feedback. In this world of the fenced-in self, we are left to our self and the patterns and whether they're healthy or unhealthy, we don't even know because they just become part of our world. This is my world and the way I do things. And it's personal. Don't interrupt my personal universe. And this puts undue pressure on us. Scott Peck, a psychologist who's written on this, says this. Because we cannot ever be totally adequate, self-sufficient, independent beings, the ideal of the rugged individual encourages us to fake it. Say fake it. Say it like you mean it. Thank you. You guys are the, last, the, the late crowd. You have more energy, so you can come on with it. You've woken up, in other words. It encourages us to hide our weaknesses and failures. It teaches us to be utterly ashamed of our limitations. It drives us to attempt to be superwoman or superman, not only in the eyes of others, but in the eyes of our own. If we're living in this world of the fenced-in self, all I can see is me. And I don't like what I see, so I've got to fix that. And if I can't fix it, I can fake it. That's what we're told. And Because to be real, to be honest with people, they hold things like that over us. They use it against us. That's the kind of world we live in. It's a cutthroat world. It's a, a competitive world. And I can't let other people see my limitations. The story of the individual has a third component. That of the individual in a small group. I want you to imagine a group of fenced-in cells coming together, eight or ten of them, and they just get together and they're all walled off from one another. Now, they interact, they have good Bible study, they may even pray with one another. And when, yes, the, the walls fall down when catastrophe happens. Someone dies or someone goes to the hospital. Yes, we'll get connected then. But when in the normalcy of life, in the everyday situations of life, we live within the world of the fenced-in self. And we, 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 we prefer it that way. Because for me to let down my wall means I've got to take a risk with you because guess what? You're probably going to hurt me one of these days. You know, if a husband and wife haven't hurt one another in the last week, it probably means you haven't been in the same house together. Because that's what we, that's life. We're going to say things sometimes uh, unknowingly that are going to hurt people and, it, and we put up these walls because we don't want to be hurt we don't want to take the risk but let me say this I had rather hurt because I've lived than to not live at all 
Because life in the fenced-in self is not really life at all. And not only this, but let me just throw another little curve to, to you. Let's imagine life in the fenced-in self within a small group, and you hear these three verses. John 13, 34 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Galatians 5, 13 says, Serve one another humbly in love. And Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Love one another, serve one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive one another. Four instructions that we are supposed to live as we interact with other people in the body of Christ. I've heard this all my life. And I've thought, man, I'm supposed to do this, but sometimes I just don't want to. And I thought, well, this is, it. I just got to get over myself. And I've been taught, you know, I've got to just do it. And it's, it's as if in my world of the fenced-in self, whenever I was called on to serve another person or talk to someone, you know, we get into this pattern. Someone gives us a call. And we're like, well, how inconvenient. CSI is on right now. <laughs> we sit there and go, uh-huh, while we're trying to listen to the TV. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Uh-huh. Uh, and then during commercials, of course, we'll listen to them, but we can't really, you know, they could be crying on the other end of the phone. We're like, but oh, they're about to solve the mystery. And when we, in this context, when I found myself as living in the world of the fenced-in self, and I thought, well, I need to serve this person because that's what the Bible tells me to do. And it feels like I'm having to take a knife and take and cut out part of myself and give it to the other person. And I've been, even been taught, well, it should feel that way because it's a sacrifice. And I've, through this process, I've realized there's an alternative. There's got to be an, an alternative, and I think there is. But you're going to have to wait for the alternative because we need a little background to understand what this alternative is. In verse 68 of Luke 1, it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Turn to someone and say Israel. Israel was the name of a, a nation, a very small nation. But it was also the name of a man. A man who was originally named Jacob. In the Old Testament, uh, in Genesis actually, it talks about the story of Jacob. And if you are interested in reading a very good story this afternoon, turn off the television because the Vikings aren't on today, they're on tomorrow night. Uh, the game of the century, even though both teams are losing. <laughs> Sorry, the Cowboys are winning this year. I'll eventually embrace the Vikings, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but if you're interested in reading a really good story, go read the story of Jacob in Genesis. It's incredible what goes on in his life and the thing it's better than a soap opera i mean my goodness the ups and downs in this guy's life are, are just phenomenal but jacob is a name that means deceiver i don't know if you remember uh the movie dances with wolves kevin cosner plays this soldier and the indians see him playing with a wolf 
And that was their first image of Kevin Cosner's character. And they named him Dances with Wolves because they associated names with experiences. And that is much the same with here in, in, uh, in the Bible where names are associated with the character of a person and the experience of that person. And Jacob's name was a de- was, was a de- uh, meant deceiver, and he was a deceiver. He deceived his father, he deceived his brother, he deceived his uncle, his uncle deceived him back. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting story of deception, uh, but it's also a story of redemption, because in the midst of this, Jacob inside the world of his fenced-in self where he was trying to win he was trying to become wealthy and he did he got what he wanted he got the birthright he got wealthy and he got the woman of his dreams but he realized something was missing he was poor at relationships he had deceived people so much and specifically his brother he was afraid his brother was going to kill him and right before he met his brother Esau, his twin brother whom, from whom he stole uh, his birthright, the birthright of, uh, from, from him. Uh, he wrestled with God, it's the, the text tells us. God came and met him and they, they wrestled all night long. And in the context of this, God knocked out his hip. But Jacob wouldn't let God go, and he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. Because he knew he was not a person that had ever received a blessing. He was a deceiver. And people who don't receive a blessing end up with a bad name. And he wanted a new name, and God gave him a new name, which was Israel. Israel literally means wrestles with God. Now, Israel was the name of a nation, and it was not only indicative of Jacob or Israel, the, the person named Israel, but it was this, this name described the people of Israel in that they were the only people in antiquity, the time of the Old Testament, who actually resisted their God. If you look at the Greeks, the Egyptians, and other uh, nations in that area, They lived in harmony with their gods. But Israel is a people that lived in rebellion toward their God. They were constantly wrestling with their God. Partly because they found the true God and all the other gods were made in the image of the people. It's easy to live in harmony with someone who lives like you do. So if your God is in your own image, your image, then it's easy to be happy with that God. But Israel's God was a God who was different than they were, and this God called them to be different, and they wrestled with that. In the midst of this wrestling, God comes. You know, God is an up-close-and-personal God. He's not the distant being that we have to figure out in our box. He's the one who comes into our box with us. He comes into our fence and wrestles with us. In, in, in Zechariah's song, he uses words like redeem, save from enemies, show mercy, and able to serve. And I'm here to, do you, to, to say to you today that God is coming inside your fence, and he's going to wrestle with you and redeem you. He's coming inside your fence, and he's going to save you from yourself. He's coming inside your fence, and he's going to show you mercy and enable you to be different. 
Because it says in verse 68 there that he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has come to this church and redeemed us. He has come near to us to set us free. This is our God. This is our up-close and personal God. It is for us as a people, not just us as individuals. Yes, we make choices. We have to choose as individuals to participate in something bigger than we are. We have to choose as individuals to participate in this God thing. But if you look in the, the scriptures, most of the time when he's referring, the scriptures are written, it's, it's almost always written to the corporate people. You can see this in Paul's letters. He says, he uses the word you, Y-O-U, over and over, because he's writing letters to people. I thought that meant individuals, because in English we have one word for singular and plural, second person. But in Greek, there are two words. And almost always in Paul's letters, when he says you, it means plural. It doesn't mean singular. They're written to us as a people, not to me as an individual. Now, God loves me as an individual. And yes, I suppose if I were the only person on the earth living on an island, God would have died for me. But the fact is, he didn't die for me to save me. He died for us, to redeem us so that we could be a people together. But that is hard for me in, in this culture that we have been raised in where we are told that we're individuals. And then when we can be individuals and figure that out, maybe we can interact with others. So as a, opposed to individualism, many of us say, well, the only alternative is collectivism. And we, we know that communism didn't work. I remember when I visited, I lived in Germany for a while, uh, right at the fall of the, the wall, and I got to go to, into East Berlin uh, the day that Checkpoint Charlie shut down. I was there. And I walked into East Berlin, and I'm here to tell you, communism doesn't work. But I'm here to tell you, on the other hand, individualism doesn't work, even though our society tells us it does. It looks good. What is the alternative? There's a word in the New Testament called, and it's called koinonia. Koinonia is translated often by the word fellowship. I grew up in a church that had a fellowship hall, and my idea of fellowship was eating lemon and apple pie or my grandmother's banana pudding after Sunday night service. That was fellowship to me. Food. That's not exactly what Paul means, although food is very good. Food is good for fellowship. But koinonia is really talking about participation. And let's imagine this is you and this is me. And we begin to participate in koinonia with one another. We start connecting like puzzle pieces. Because a puzzle piece by itself is meaningless. But a puzzle piece connected makes a part of a picture. And each of us is a puzzle piece. And the only way we become God's puzzle is when we are connected to one another and participate in life with one another. Participation in this life is what is going to tear down the other two walls. This is the way we get out of our fenced-in self. The first wall we're going to tear down, or the, actually it's the third wall, this wall here 
we're going to tear down as we receive the connected life. Everything in life that's of any value is a gift. You cannot make the connected life happen. You cannot make friendships happen. I've had people try to do that with me. I had someone in seminary who was sitting next to me in a class years ago. He wanted to be my friend. He really wanted to be my friend. Now, he was married. There was no problems, you know, but he really wanted to be my friend. And he wanted to talk, and I'm like, back off. You know, kind of weirding me out here. But he, you know, he was like wanting to be my friend, and, and if he invited me to something and I had to say no to it, and he, he even called me out, out of the class because he couldn't endure the class because he was really troubled with me, and he said, why won't you come? And I'm like, because you're really asking me this question right now and you're weirding me out. I didn't respond that way because I was feeling guilty. Like, was there a problem within me? And I'm like, you can't make the connected life happen. Connections are a gift. People are a gift. Now, if we live within the walled, uh, the, the fenced-in self, we don't realize that because people are a threat because they might realize I'm not perfect. But if others are a gift, then I don't have to be perfect because they're a gift to me and they accept me and embrace me and I can embrace them. We can become Jesus with skin on to one another. Many of us don't understand the love of God because we've never been hugged by the power of the Spirit through another person. Many of us have never understood the love of God because we've never been told by another person, God loves you in the power of the Spirit. Because when that happens, it goes straight to your heart. And you're like, wow, those are just words. No, they're not just words. They're Spirit-driven words that God spoke through a person. That is a gift to each of us, and we need that. Uh, Jill was leading worship this, this morning and last night and after last night she came up to me and she said wow that song God laid that song on my heart about I need you I, I, need, we, I need to love you and I love you and I embrace you I didn't know what you're preaching on God is speaking this to us this morning he's speaking this to us as a church because in, in uh, Ephesians 4.25 it says for we are all members of one body there are some of you today who are here hurting, depressed, and defeated. And you're thinking, I want to change. I need to change. I don't like where I am. And I'm here to tell you that as long as you look at yourself and your problems or your depression, you're not going to change very much. Except for the fact that depression might just grow a little bit more. It's like a, tail, a, a dog chasing its tail. Or a tail chasing its dog, whichever you might let me give you an example of this i want you to do what i tell you to do right now okay you ready i want you to do what i'm about to tell you to do are you ready you're going to do this i have to get your agreement here because okay here it goes are you ready don't look at me don't look at me don't look at me oh don't look at me right now now some of you are still looking at me and those of you who are not looking at me are thinking about looking at me. 
Because I'm telling you not to do that. And whenever we focus on the negative, the negative just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our lives. And that's what happens in the fenced-in self because Satan loves to look over our wall and say, I saw what you did yesterday. And we go, you're right, I'm not perfect, I need to work on that, I've got to become a better Christian, I need, to, I need to work, oh, come on, why can't I get over my anger? And the anger just gets gross in our eyes. In the fenced-in self, we're not free. We're not free. Because we are members of one body, we can live into the reality of ministering to one another so that we can become free. God speaks to me for you and you for me. It's remarkable when God does this. It's just a beautiful thing, and I think he will do it a lot more as we exit our fenced-in self. You remember I talked about trying to minister to other people or serve another person or forgive another person, love another person. And I felt like it was like cutting off a part of me and giving to another person as I tried to serve them. Last week as I was working on this, I just, I wrote down in my journal, when I minister to another person, I minister to me. I'm like, wow, I've never heard it said like that. But it makes sense. If we're all part of the same body... And I minister to you, I'm ministering to me. Wow, that means I can be blessed. It's not a sacrifice for me to minister to you. It's a blessing for me to minister to you within this perspective. Now, if I'm living in the fenced-in self, it's not a blessing. But if I exit the fenced-in self and receive you, and receive the connected life, ministering to you is a blessing to me. You serving someone else is a blessing to you. It was interesting. I was feeling like a little bit of a heretic as I said this. And Paul Eddy, one of our executive team pastors, said this at lunch the next day in a staff training. And I'm like, whoa. I called him up and said, Paul, that's what God said. And he's like, is this, is this for real? He said, that's what God is speaking into our body. This is what we're becoming. This is who we are. Which means... When we become connected and we participate in one another like this and we receive the connected life and those I'm connected to, when they mourn, I feel it. I don't just cry because I want to cry. I, I cry because their life has touched my life and I feel their pain. When another person rejoices, I rejoice over their rejoicing, and it, not because I'm happy for them. Oh, that's great. Da, 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 now, CSI. <laughs> I rejoice because they're part of me. I'm part of them. I'm part of you. You're part of me. Because we have received the connected life, we can rejoice together and really experience that rejoicing. Your problems, your struggles become my struggles. Your successes, your victories become my victories. How do you begin to receive this connected life? Because you're not going to just walk out here and go, whoa, I'm going to be connected. How can you begin to enter in this? Let me encourage you to do a couple of things. December 4th is a Discover Woodland Hills class. I encourage you to go to that if you've not been. 
find out about this place. If you are a part of this body, you need to understand what God has been doing here. You need to understand where God is leading us because you need to understand the bigger story. And I'm not telling you this because I want more members of this church or I, I'm not telling you this because I want you to get involved in some level. I'm, I'm saying this to you because you need it. You need a bigger story. You need to fit into something bigger than you. Another thing you can do is go to the covenant relationships class. It'll be coming up sometime in January, most likely. Or another thing is to discover a spiritual gifts class, because it also, I think, is going to be happening early next year. Uh, because you need to discover how you fit as an individual in this place. What do you have to offer? Because each one of you has something unique to offer. I encourage you to explore this because uh, education uh, theorists tell us that you have to hear something six times before you learn it. And I wonder why I didn't learn calculus. Maybe it's because I skipped the classes and didn't hear the repetition. You have to hear something over or wrestle with it over and over and over because our world tells us, no, the fenced-in self is the ideal and you're not going to break out of the fenced-in self just because you heard one sermon. It's a pattern. This is to impact your pattern of living, not just how, oh, that was a great sermon. You need your pattern of living addressed and you need repetition and these three classes can help with that. Another thing you can do is get connected through a covenant group. Now, I'm not saying this to sell you on covenant groups because there are a lot of people who go to covenant groups who remain in their fence themselves. It's like going to algebra in high school and sleeping through class. You're not going to learn algebra just because you go. And, and to break out of the fenced-in self in the midst of a small group means you have to discover and ask yourself different questions. It's not about you. And you can't ask yourself this, what's in it for me? Because that's what happens in many small groups. And as soon as it doesn't work for them, they go to another one. What about being connected to people and we figure out together what it means to live in this? And when it doesn't work, we work on it together. Because... This body is our body, not just the one who's leading it. The last wall or the last fence that's back at the back here that we need to tear down to break out of the fenced in self is that is broken through by sharing the connected life. That which is received is best experienced when given away. The gift of the connected life is not something you can hold on to tightly. In fact, it's a little bit like jello. I don't know if you've ever tried this, it's kind of a fun experiment. But put jello in your hand and then squeeze it. The more tightly you squeeze, the quicker it goes out of your hand. And that's the way the gifts of God work. The more tightly you hold on to the gifts of God, the quicker you lose them. And the more tightly you hold on to the connected life, the quicker you will lose it. And what, what we do this with people, and we think, oh, I've got people who love me, and we hold tight, tightly onto it, and we say, oh, us four no more. You can't break into our little group. So we just put a box or we put a fence around our group. It's no longer just around me. It's around my entire group. Revelation 21.2 says this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride 
beautifully dressed for her husband. This is talking about the church. The Holy City and the New Jerusalem are, are, are New Testament language for the church. And it's referring to uh, old, uh, first century pattern of marriage. Whenever a, a man would propose to his future wife and they would, she would accept, they were betrothed. And the betrothal was more than an engagement. It was actually just that close to being married. The only thing they weren't doing was living together. Doesn't sound very much like fun to me, but... Uh, they, they had everything else. They were committed to one another as if they were married, but they weren't living together. He would go away for about a year and prepare a home. And then after about a year, give or take, the father would send, would send the, his son to go get his bride. And the bride's job was to be ready for the receiving of her husband. And the bridal party had to be ready. The bridal gown had to be ready. Everything had to be ready for him. He did, and he didn't know when he was coming either. Jesus is returning for his church one of these days. He's returning for us. And we have to ask ourselves, what does our gown look like? I used to uh, go with my mom and my grandmother to a place called Hancock's. I don't know if you have those here, but it's like Joanne's Fabrics or a fabric store. And in the fabric store, it's, it was so much fun for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old when they were wishing they were out driving a tractor with their father or whatever, something manly. No, I had to go to a fabric store. And there are bolts of cloth, pink and yellow and green and doodads on them. And then there were thread, there, uh, ro- uh, Thimbles of thread, I think that's what they're called. And, you know, spools of thread, there we go. Thimbles or something else. You know, I, didn't, I hated that store. And they would take forever because they'd go through the patterns and pull out the patterns and go, oh, this is a cute dress. And I'm like, oh, not another one. Just take me home. And I've often wondered if when the Lord returns for us, instead of a dress, that's adorning us as his bride if he doesn't find a fabric store where we're just loosely connected, maybe even unconnected. We're not a dress. We're a pile of thread over here. And yeah, some of us may be beautiful threads, even golden, but we're not connected. We're not woven into one another. We're not part of the dress that God wants to weave to adorn his church one of the ways this is manifest as we share the connected life as is comes as we embrace people that are not like us let me challenge you connect to someone who's poorer than you are or richer you know we can categorize people in both categories and if you're poor today befriend someone really love someone who maybe is a little more well off than you are and quit judging them vice versa embrace somebody who doesn't look like you you know it's it's you know it's a lot easier to love someone who whose language is english and it's their first language 
but someone who you, you may not understand quite as easily. And you say, well, I don't have a problem with people like that. I love those people. Well, just that kind of language gives you away. Because if I'm participating in, with a person of a different color than me, I don't see their color. I don't see their language because he and I are one. I don't, I don't understand all their individual nuances, but we're one, and I'm aiming to understand, and it means I have to learn to be quiet. I have to learn to listen. That is my sharing of the connected life. It's my giving away of that connected life. It's the opening of that door. And when we do this, when we break down the door to the past and we embrace our heritage and we row that boat into the future as God leads us into freedom. And as we receive the connected life and tear down this wall and we share the connected life and tear down the wall behind us and give away what God has given us, we become free. We become free. I become free to be me. I begin to understand who I am and what I have to offer without trying to figure out me. Am I perfect? No. I still have neuroses. I'm still stubborn. I'm still all this, a lot of stuff, but I don't have to be perfect because I'm connected to you and you have strengths that I don't have. And it's okay if you see my limitations. It's okay that I don't have to be perfect because I'm free. And there's little better than freedom. And if you want this morning to explore this a little bit more or receive prayer with regard to this because you need to break out of this fenced-in self, there'll be people praying, ready to pray with you at the front. And if you're sitting there this morning and thinking, how do I begin to enter into this, this Jesus stuff, and I don't even understand this, but I really want to begin this journey with Jesus, there'll be someone standing over at the next steps table who can who'd be glad to talk with you and, and provide a little feedback. May God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you and give you peace as we enter this together. In Jesus' name, amen.